Uh, my name is Yan. Uh, tonight's second Bible reading is First John chapter two, verse one to six. It's in your uh, pure Bible, page one two seven eight. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. The man who says, "I know Him," but does not do what He commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys His word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. This is the word of the Lord. That passage. Uh, now let me encourage you. Turn around, welcome each other. I'll get ready and I'll call you back. Now there is an outline for the sermon, so feel free to grab one out the front. And there's also a full transcript of the sermon for those who would like that. That might be helpful to you. So turn around, welcome each other. I'll call you back uh, in about 30 seconds. <laughs> What do you think about this statement? Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. It does make some sense, doesn't it? Now, it's easy to talk, it's easy to speak, it's easy to instruct, it's easy to teach, it's easy to command, it's easy even, in a sense, to preach. Talk is cheap, if it's just talking. And that's why George Bernard Shaw, who was the Irish playwright, he said this, he said, he who can, does, he who cannot, teaches. You get that? No offences to teachers, but what, what he's in a sense saying is, if you're, for example, you're no good at engineering, you're hopeless at engineering, well, what you might as well do is go and teach engineering. Or, you might not be good as an accountant, you're hopeless as an accountant. You might as well go and teach it, teach accounting. Or you might not be good as a student at all. You don't like exams, you don't like essays. Well, you might as well and go teach them, teach the students. You hear these cliches all the time, don't you? Here's a few more. He's all talk. Or it's all hot air. Or actions speak louder than words. Or practice what you preach. Or all mouth and no trousers. Don't know if you understand that. It's British, so they've got, they're a bit different. Anyway, <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. Or don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk. Don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk. Now, what do you think about these cliches? They do make some sense, don't they? Now, as a parent, what I teach, what I command, what I ask of my children doesn't really carry much weight if I don't walk the talk. As a preacher, what I teach doesn't really carry much weight if I don't also walk the talk. As Christians, we don't carry much weight in what we say, in what we share about Jesus, in how we evangelise, if we don't also walk the talk. And that's why David Jackman, he's an English evangelical minister, a good guy, in one of his books, he, he wrote 
he noted down this sort of damning critique of Christianity. He said, one of the, the biggest hindrance to the spread of the Christian message has often been within the church itself. That's damning, isn't it? It's sad, isn't it? And that's because not all Christians practice what they preach. Not all Christians walk the talk. And so that's why in what we've been studying, the letters of John, the Apostle John wrote down these letters for the Christians then and the Christians today. He wrote down this letter for the churches then and the churches today. And he wrote down, firstly, for us to be weary of the talkers. There are talkers, those who just talk, and that's all they're good for. They just talk, those who don't practice what they preach. And secondly, he wrote this letter down so that we too won't be talkers, but that we would practice what we preach, so that we will be walkers, those who walk the talk. And so in our passage today, what we see is, John reminds us of three things. He says, firstly, what Christians have. What do Christians have? Secondly, what Christians know. And thirdly, what Christians must do. So what Christians have, what Christians know and what Christians must do. And so firstly, what are the things that Christians have? What do we have? We see when anyone becomes a Christian, when you became a Christian, now I know that there are those of you who are not yet Christians or are still exploring, that's wonderful. We're so grateful that you're here. But we want you to hear this. What is the best thing you have as a Christian? In a sense, you get the best thing ever. You get the best thing ever, something that nothing can buy. And that is this. What you have as a Christian, what you get to have as a Christian, is the Lord Jesus himself. As you give your life to him, he gives his life to you. And when that happens, you see, when you become a Christian, you in fact get a new, new life. We heard it this morning, get a new life. You're no longer someone who belongs in the kingdom of darkness, but you've been plucked out and placed in the kingdom of light. You're no longer an enemy of God, but you've become a child of God, one who is loved and cherished by God. You're no longer one who continues to live in sin, in rebellion against God, in defiance against God, but you've been brought from that life and you're given a new life. You live a new life where you strive to not sin. And so that's what John writes here in our first verse. He says you've got a new life now as Christians. You can't go on sinning. So have a look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. So open up your Bibles, the the first verse. John says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. You see, this is part of the Christian life. We strive to live a sin-free life. We make every effort to not sin to not rebel against God, to not reject God, to not be disobedient to God. But then what happens when Christians sin? I mean, Christians fail all the time, don't they? Christians fail knowingly or unknowingly. What happens when Christians sin? Well, what Martin Luther did, this was the great reformer, when he became an Augustinian monk, what he did was, when he sinned, he was in fact crushed by his sins, he had so many sins he was crushed by, he was tormented by, he was crippled by his sins. And what he did was he went to his confessor. He would spend hours upon hours confessing all his sins. He would list them down to his confessor. And so he would try to confess all that he's done. And often what would happen was after he spent hours confessing his sins, he would go away. 
but he will remember some more sins he forgot to confess and so he'll find another brother in the monastery and he'll confess even the smallest and slightest of sins. Now his confessor eventually got tired of Martin Luther. He's there all the time. He's a monk and he's confessing all these sins. He said, he says to Luther, brother, if you're going to come here all the time and confess so much sins, at least go and commit something worth confessing. Commit some big sin. Go kill somebody. Don't just confess these baby sins. So that was how Martin Luther dealt with his sins. You see, what John tells us here is that as Christians, we have something far better. We have the Lord Jesus himself. If you are a Christian, you have the Lord Jesus. And so John writes here that Christians will have Jesus, the one who speaks in our defence before God the Father. Have a look at the second part of verse 1. John says here, But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. Now there's a technical word here that has been expanded in our English version, helpfully so, in our NIV translation, but the technical word here is the word paraclete. Paraclete, that is the one who is called alongside. Jesus is the one who is called alongside. He's the mediator, the intercessor, the advocate. He's the one who speaks in our defence like an attorney. And so what does this look like? Well, just imagine in the courtroom of God, in the courtroom of heaven, Satan is there on one side and he's accusing you. He's the accuser. That's in fact what Satan means. The accuser. He's accusing you. God, you cannot accept that person. You cannot accept that person. Look at how filthy that person is. How dirty that person is. That person ignored you. That person gave no regard to you at all. Look at this long list of sins that person has done. Very long list. Look at what he did when he was 12, when he was 13, when he was alone, when he was in the crowd, when he was in uni. Look at this list of sins. You cannot accept this person. Look at the things that's gone through his mind, through his mind, through his heart. You must punish him, God. So that's Satan, the accuser. He accuses and accuses us before God. But then on the other side, you've got Jesus Christ. He's the paraclete. He's the advocate. He's like our defence attorney. And so what does he say? Well, he says, well, that person, he has done some major stuff. He's did a lot of wrong and he's hurt God in a big way. But you see, that person is mine. Whatever that person has done, whatever penalty that person has deserved, it's actually all been paid for. And so Jesus, this paraclete, this advocate, he pleads our case before God. This is what Christians have. We have the Lord Jesus who pleads our case. He's like, it's not like, in fact, the earthly barristers. They're the ones in the law court, right? They defend their, uh, their clients. And they charge their clients an arm and a leg. How much do barristers get paid? Anyone know? It's about a million dollars an hour or something like that. But Jesus here, he does it for free. In fact, he does it pro bono. In fact, more than that, Jesus does this at his own cost. He's our advocate at his own cost. And that's the cost of his own life. And so he pleads to God the Father on our behalf with his life. He's our advocate. So John says here, we have the best thing ever. We have the Lord Jesus himself, our advocate. And secondly, he tells us here, Jesus is our advocate because he is our atoning sacrifice. 
He's only able to be our advocate because he's our atoning sacrifice. Have a look at verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, it's another big word here. What does atoning sacrifice mean? Well, again, there's another technical word that, that sits behind this English translation and it's this word. The word is propitiation. It's hard to say propitiation. Now, does that help, this technical word? Well, what does it mean? Well, there's a few things here, uh, uh, today in our passage. The technical part is worth understanding, particularly this word. It's important for us to understand. But to understand this, it helps to understand the fullness and completeness of what Jesus did at the cross. You see, for Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that is, for him to be the propitiation for our sins, means that Jesus did something not only in relation to us, our sins, our curse, but he does something in relation to God, that is God's anger and God's righteous wrath against human sin. Jesus makes God propitious, that is he makes God favourable towards us. Now it might be hard to understand but I'll try to demonstrate with this Rejoice hymn book. So just say this hymn book is like a barrier between God and man. I know hymns are not a barrier between God and man, but just say this, bar- this hymn book is a big, massive barrier between God on one side and man, and I'll use man generically, so mankind. So on one side, the problem with humanity and God, this barrier, what this represents is on one side, it represents human sin, our defiance against God, our rejection of God, us going to God with our puny fists, I'm king of my own life, I'm lord of my own life, not you. So that's on one side, there's this aspect of this barrier. But then on the other side of this barrier is in a sense God's anger, God's wrath, righteous wrath against human rebellion. Okay, So on this side you've got God angry with sin and human sin. This side you've got humanity in their sin. And so for Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins, what that means is that Jesus in a sense takes this barrier away. So he takes our sin He takes our curse, he dies on the cross. But what that also means is he has dealt with God's anger. So he has directed God's anger now towards him. He directs God's wrath towards him. By taking the barrier away, taking human sin, human curse, he takes God's anger and directs that towards him. And so that's why Jesus makes God propitious. He makes God favourable towards mankind, towards the one who he takes sins away from. You see that? The barrier is taken away. Sin has been taken away. Anger has been directed to him. And so propitiation is the turning away, the turning aside and redirecting of God's wrath and anger towards himself. But then we read this verse, um, in this verse we read here that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins And not only for our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. Now, does this mean that eventually everyone will will be saved? Everyone will be pardoned because he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world? Does this mean that you don't actually have to believe God in the first place? Well, many have tried to advocate this idea of universalism, that is, everyone will be saved eventually. But that's not what John is saying here. Rather, what he's saying is that the death of Jesus is, in a sense, sufficient for all of mankind, 
all of the world, all the sins of the world, is sufficient for all, but it's effective only in those who embrace it, those who want it, those who believe it. Sufficient for all, effective in some. And so what we see here is what Christians have. We have the best thing ever. We have the Lord Jesus himself, our advocate and the propitiation for our sins. Now, if this is what we have as Christians, what do we know? What can we claim to know? Well, what we can claim to know is the greatest privilege of any person. And this is what John gets to next. What we can claim to know as Christians is that we can claim to know God himself. Just think about that. Our little minds, our little hearts, our little person can claim to know the almighty God of the universe, the one who created us, the one who gave us life, the one who sustains all life. We can claim that we know with our little minds, our little hearts, that we know God. Now, not just know about God. Many people know about God. We know God personally, intimately. That is to say, we have a relationship with God. This is what Christians know. This is what we can claim. Now, think about how privileged we are to say that, to be able to claim that. I mean, I think many of us would, be, would feel privileged if we can say amongst our friends and family, we actually know someone who's famous. So, if, we, if I can say, you know, I, I know Hugh Jackman, you know, I had a Bible with him the other day, you know, I would feel quite privileged if I actually did know him. Or, or if I know Bill Gates, he gave me a tour of his multi-million dollar home the other day. I'll feel quite privileged, wouldn't I? And I'm sure you would too, if you know someone who's famous and popular like that. But that's nothing compared to this. We often don't see how wonderful we have it. You, as a Christian, can claim that you know God, the maker of this universe, the one who's given you life and everyone else's life. You can claim that you know him. Look at verse 3. We know that we have come to know him, and that is God. You see, Christians know God. But the reality is, of course, many claim to know God, even in the church, but are just talking the talk. Many just talk the talk. And so how do we know for sure that the claim is for real? How do we know that you actually do know God? Well, John actually makes this very clear, as clear as possible in these following verses. He says, in a sense, you know God if you obey him. If you obey God, you know God. And so he's saying you you, you can't just talk the talk, you have to walk the talk. So look at verses 3 and 4. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, here's a very important test. When someone claims to know God, when someone claims to be a Christian, but then goes on and say, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be around Christians. I don't need to commit to any body of Christ. I can be a solo Christian. I'll live my whole life on my own, by myself, as a solo Christian. I'll survive on my own. You'll have to question that, don't you? Or if someone says claims, I know God, I'm a Christian, but then goes on to say, I'm actually quite happy to keep my faith private. I don't want anyone to know. There's no need for anyone to know that I'm a follower and a believer in Jesus. 
In fact, I don't want to offend anyone by telling my friends or family that I'm a Christian. No one needs to know. I mean, if someone claims that, you must question, are they walking the talk? Or when someone says, it doesn't make any difference to my life at all that I believe. It only affects my belief, not how I behave, not my life. Well, when someone says that, it's just talking the talk, isn't it? It's not walking the walk. And so what do you think when someone says these things? Well, in a sense, the right to judge anyone belongs to God. But when you hear comments like these, anything like these, it sounds very much like talking the talk, not walking the walk. But John is actually quite strong in his words here. He actually says, you are a liar, if that is you. If you claim to know God, but do not obey him, you're a liar. So if you are for real, you walk the walk. And so John says here, God's love, if that is true for you, God's love is made complete in you. Look at verse 5. If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. You see, John is saying, if you've been touched by the love of God, if you've been moved by his sacrifice for you, it actually makes a fundamental difference to your life. You will obey him willingly. You will love him willingly. You will love one another willingly if you have been touched by his love. And so what's happening is God's love is made complete in you. It's having an effect on your love, uh, on your life so that you will start loving others. It's a bit like, for example, my relationship with my kids. Three kids and I love them all dearly. But you see, my love is made complete in them if after loving them for years and years, loving them sacrificially, joyfully, generously, providing all they have and own, I love them with my life. And if after that, they in turn love me back. They love their mother, Yvonne. If they love each other, if they love each other, then my love has been made complete in them. It's going on. My love has done its job and its work in them. They are loving others. And so God's love is made complete in us when we obey him, when we love him, when we love each other. And so this is walking the walk. It's not just claiming it, but it's doing it. We cannot claim to know God, to be a Christian, to abide in him, but behave totally different from him. And so John ends this passage now, our final verse, with a great little summary. To walk the walk is really to walk like Jesus. To walk the walk is really to walk like Jesus. Look at verses 6. Bit of verse 5. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And so six verses. What does this passage all add up to? Well, in a sense it's saying, whatever you say, whatever you claim, whatever you proclaim, it's all meaningless unless you walk the talk as well. Now just think about that on a cosmic scale. Just imagine what it would be like if Jesus just and only talked the talk. Jesus sitting there in his, on his throne in heaven and Jesus is thinking, yeah, I'll love these earthlings. You know, Jesus is talking, I'll love these earthlings, I'll love them unconditionally. I'll take on flesh, I'll become a man for their sake. I'll save them from this mess they've got themselves into. 
But then when the first Christmas comes along, Jesus thinks, what? I have to become a baby, a helpless baby for these people? I have to leave my heavenly glory for them? I'm changing my mind. See, what would happen if Jesus only talked the talk? Or just say Jesus didn't make it to earth and Jesus says, as he's teaching, I'll save these people, I'll suffer for them, I'll be persecuted for them, I'll even die for them. But then Easter comes along and Jesus is thinking, what? I have to die that type of death, such humiliation, such shame, such violence. I'm changing my mind. What if Jesus just talked the talk? We can imagine in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying to his Father in heaven, he's sweating with blood of, blood of sweat and he's crying out to God. And he's understanding now that God wants him to experience the full anger and wrath for human sin, that he is to bear the full weight of human sin. Jesus could have said, you know, I was going to do this, but now not your will, Father, but mine. Send in the angels, save me from this wretched place, I've changed my mind. What if Jesus only talked the talk? Or what if Jesus said, I was going to lay my life down for these people, but then I came to them. They did not receive me. In fact, they spat on me, they mocked me, they ridiculed me, they called me the prince of demons. Then they hung me and murdered me. I looked deep into their hearts and all I could see was evil and wickedness. Send in the angels, wipe them out, they're not worth saving. See, what if Jesus just talked the talk? You see, if Jesus only talked the talk, talked about all those wonderful things, but did not do it, there would be no hope for anyone. No hope for you, no hope for me, no redemption, no reconciliation with God, no sacrifice, no propitiation, no salvation, no heaven. If Jesus only talked the talk, we are all lost in our sins. But you see, our Lord and Saviour walked the walk. He walked knowingly, willingly, lovingly to Calvary. He went to the cross for you. He bore the full wrath of God's anger for you. He became the propitiation for your sins. The Son of God died for you. See, Jesus is one who practised what he preached. His actions spoke louder than his words. He's not just all words. He's not just all talk, but he walked the talk. And that's why John said this in verse 6, towards the end, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And so think about that and think about you and your own life and your own heart. If any one of us, if any one of you claim to know God, claim to be a Christian, but your life does not reflect it at all, your friends, your family, all those around you, they look at your life and actually see no difference that your faith has on your life. See nothing different at all. You know, your values, your priorities, your desires, your ambition, your loves are pretty much the same as everyone else in this world. They see no difference. In a sense, you're just talking the talk, not walking the walk. Your life is inconsistent with the ways of God. Then that's hopeless. In fact, what John says here, he says, you are a liar. 
He uses strong words, doesn't he? You are a liar and the truth is not in you. And so this week, consider our hearts. Are we making a claim and it's not reflected in our life? Do we only obey when it's convenient? Am I only obeying God when it's convenient for me, when it doesn't affect my lifestyle? Now, Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, of course you're going to be committed to the people of God, right? You're going to be committed to the community of believers, the body of Christ. You come each week, but as soon as you get a better offer, as soon as something else turns up, you know, a party, you're subject to a better offer all the time. Then your obedience, well, it takes a lower priority. What does your obedience show about your knowledge of God? Is it fickle? Or will you only obey if it doesn't interfere or impinge on your priorities in life? Think about your prayer life. What are the things you pray for? Are they the things that align with the will of God, the work of the kingdom, the salvation of souls? Or are they involved with the things that will not last? Give me success. Give me health. Give me wealth. But we only obey if it doesn't affect your life, your loves, your bank account. Are you more generous to yourself or are you more generous to God? You see, if what we believe is not consistent with our life, John says you're a liar. You're a liar and the truth is not in you. And so what are you? Are you a talker or are you a walker as well? See, if you are just a talker, you have to assess this and check your own hearts. If you are just a talker, then the best thing for you to do is to admit it. Admit that you don't really know God. Admit that you don't really understand the breadth and the depth of the love of God for you. But then come to know him. Come to love him. Come to obey him. If you are just a talker, admit it, but come to know the Lord God. But if you are a walker, if you do in fact walk the talk, then what that means is that your life has been touched by the love of God. You understand the breadth and the depth of the love of God for you in Christ. And so as a result, you willingly, you joyfully love him back. You obey him with all your life. And so God's love is made complete in you. You see, this is what happens when you actually truly know God. If you understand the extent of what he's done for you, of course you'll love him. Of course you'll obey him. You see, when we survey what God has done for us, the love of God for us displayed in Jesus, you can't do anything but love him back and obey him. Now, this is put beautifully in a final hymn that we'll sing. I'll read a few verses to you. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain... I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. See, when I walk the talk, my soul, my life, my all is God's. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not withhold your love from us, but you have sent your Son, your precious Son Jesus, to be the propitiation for our sins. We thank you that 
He has turned away your wrath towards him and away from us. And so help us to love you, to obey you, to show this world that we abide in you. And when we survey the wondrous cross, we want to give you our soul, our life, our all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.